Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Getting Even is produced by Pushkin Industries. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can hear Getting Even and other Pushkin shows ad-free and receive exclusive bonus episodes. Sign up on the Getting Even show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. A subject so many Americans have to confront, sexual harassment. Women were calling in, clogging the switchboards. The question being asked, just where is that line between friendly relations and sexual harassment? It was hard to believe it was happening. A Supreme Court nominee on the verge of confirmation, being called back to answer charges that he had once made unwelcome sexual comments to a female. Perhaps not ever has so much turned on a single hearing. There are a couple of things you need to know about how I came to be sitting in front of a nationally televised hearing of the Senate Judiciary Committee on October 11, 1991. First, I crafted a statement for the FBI about working with Clarence Thomas at the EEOC where he sexually harassed me. Then that statement was leaked to the press. National Public Radio has learned that the woman brought her accusation to the Senate Judiciary Committee last month. And finally, after a public outcry, Senator Joe Biden subpoenaed me to testify. I had three days' notice. Remarkably, my legal team somehow came together. For one thing, when we first talked, it was not even clear they were going to do anything. We really didn't know whether they were even going to consider it. That's law professor Susan Della Ross. She's an author, and she is the director of a women's human rights clinic 
at Georgetown University. Ross is one of the women who pioneered the field of sexual harassment law. It wasn't until 1986 that the Supreme Court ruled sexual harassment a civil rights violation. Five years later, when I testified that Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed me, it sparked a national conversation, one I never anticipated. Luckily, I had Susan Deller Ross as part of my legal team. She was the only one of us who had experience with sexual harassment litigation. Somebody on the the Senate Judiciary Committee called me up and gave me a hypothetical and said, would that constitute sexual harassment? And I said, well, yes, I thought it would. And he said, can you send me a memo that would describe what sexual harassment law consists of? And so I said, yes, I'd be happy to do that. And I sent a memo. And then a few days later, I got another call, this time saying there was an actual person behind this hypothetical. The person speaking to me said, would you be willing to speak to this person? I said, yes, I'd be delighted to. Of course, the person behind this hypothetical was me. I'm Anita Hill. This is Getting Even, my podcast about equality and what it takes to get there. On this show, I'll be speaking with people who are improving our imperfect world, people who took risks and broke the rules. In the last episode, you heard from Sakari Hardnett, one of the witnesses who wasn't called to testify at the 1991 Thomas confirmation hearing. We talked about how being excluded from this historic conversation impacted her life and the country in the past three decades. In this episode, Susan Della Ross and I try to piece together what else was happening behind the scenes, much of which the public has never heard. You and I talked on the telephone before my testimony, and we were trying to figure out what we were going to be stepping into and how we could be heard. We had no notice of what was going on. Senator Biden called the committee back in session to hear the testimony. And he called me, and I have it written down, on October 8th in 1991, I was told that I'd be called to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Yes, they announced that there's going to be a hearing, that they're going to ask you to testify, which you didn't know before that day. Then uh, you fly to Washington, D.C., and then the very next morning, you start testifying. There I was in Washington, D.C., and I think we were all just shocked by how fast it came about. I was sitting in a conference room, and that was the first time we met face-to-face. Uh, and we were there to just try to prepare for what was going to be happening the following day, which was when they told me that I would be called and sworn in to testify. That day, we really didn't know much of anything. We didn't know who was going to be talking aside from Thomas. We didn't know whether the committee was trying even to investigate Was there ever any real exchange of information about the process and how it would work? Not as far as I'm aware. All we were told was that you were going to be testifying first, and that I got a call the night before from someone on Biden's staff saying, oh, no, we're going to switch it. 
we're going to start with Clarence Thomas, which is peculiar <laughs> to start with Clarence Thomas rather than starting with you who had the account of what had happened. And the, the switching of the order allowed for Clarence Thomas to testify on prime time morning TV as well mm-hmm. when you know, people are still making their way to work and still at home watching. Mm-hmm. So he had a much broader viewing audience. So it was strategic. Yeah, absolutely. And we knew nothing about information they had in their hands, but I gather they had refused to tell you. Well, and the hearing was about his character and fitness for the position. Mm-hmm. There were women who said that they had experienced or witnessed harassing behavior, and others knew from their own experience that Thomas was making sexual advances or using the office to assess women who worked at the EEOC for their sexual availability to him. And so... There was much that could have been admitted in terms of witnesses, but and I'm particularly struck about the lack of willingness to hear from those those women who had experienced something similar or even other experiences that went to Thomas's character and his fitness for the position. Did you know about those women? No, I didn't know a thing. I don't think any of us did. We didn't learn it until after the fact that there were other women who worked at the EOC who reported a similar experience. I only found it out when I read the transcript of everything after the hearing. That was my first time, and I was so astounded to see how closely their accounts mirrored exactly what you had said. But that was kept from the country. The country never knew that. And it was the chairman who basically said, we're not going to hear from the witnesses without explaining what they would have testified to. So the the committee kept them from testifying. They didn't allow Sukari Hartnett to testify. They did put it in the record, but nobody knew what it said. And that was because the committee didn't write a report Committees always write a report after they do their work before forwarding it to the full Senate for a vote. But there was no committee report assessing the reliability, the credibility of you, of him. People were left to try to piece together what they had seen, which was a totally incomplete set of facts. So There was very clear evidence. The media never reported it on it afterwards. They shut it down once he was confirmed. So many of the senators, they just were trying to get rid of it. They didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to explore it. They didn't think it was relevant. They didn't care. So the general public has never come to learn exactly what the evidence was that corroborated everything you said. After the break, Susan Della Ross and I posed the question, What if? What if the hearings hadn't been so poorly handled in 1991? What if we had all the information available? 
What if the public had been offered a better understanding of sexual harassment during the hearing? Where would we be today? Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. You are listening to Getting Even, my podcast about equality and what it takes to get there. I'm Anita Hill. And I'm talking with Susan Deller Ross, the only member of my 1991 legal team with experience in sexual harassment law. Do you think that people had any real awareness, even after the 1986 decision by the Supreme Court, that sexual harassment was, in fact, a violation of the law? No, I, I think people were very confused by it. Initially, the courts didn't treat it as. Uh, an employment discrimination issue at all. They saw it as sexual activity. And it was sort of a boys will be boys, what can you expect? And because the facts are often really atrocious, 
there's a tendency in media not to cover what really goes on in these cases. I, I remember hearing people saying, oh, I want to be sexually harassed. You don't know what's going on when you say something like that. Well, you don't. And I think you're right. It's a focus on sex, uh, not even sexual, but on sex itself, and, and that being something normal. And overlooking the term harassment, and even today when people think about sexual harassment, many people still think that we're just talking about words. And we're talking about verbal exchanges and not the psychological and often physical harm that is going on in the workplace. And certainly if we have that today, in 1991, when we sort of jumped into the scene in uh, the Clarence Thomas case, there was so much confusion. I think the country would have been even further ahead if it had, had gotten some real explanation of what sexual harassment consists of at the time. Now, I, I think there was nevertheless progress, but maybe not as much progress as might have happened if there had been a real attempt to grapple with the issue at hand. One of the things I think really happened was, A, there were a lot of women who were very, very upset about how you were treated. And that convinced a lot of women to run for office. President Bush Sr. had been vetoing a proposed bill that would expand Title VII to allow victims of sexual harassment to get damages. After the hearings, he finally signed because of the pressure the Republican Party was under for having supported a sexual harasser from the women who'd been horrified by watching what had happened. There was publicity around the world about sexual harassment. So I think if we'd been able to have a full presentation of what actually happened with all the sources of evidence that were relevant to the issue, people would have had a better understanding and, and gone forward. But nevertheless, it did make progress. You know, but the fact that there was an impact shows to me, one, how people were interested and they needed to know the information. But it also indicates to me that there was a lost opportunity, mm -hmm. that there was a powerful platform out there that could have become mm -hmm. a model for how to do this right. We might have avoided some things in the future. Mm -hmm. And by the future, I mean between now and 1991, 30 years or so, you know, we might have learned some lessons that could have been put in place. And, and I think about all these what ifs, if there had been a different kind of investigation by a different body than the FBI or expert witnesses had been allowed, if there had been less disinformation or information shared so that people could respond, we could respond to the, the certainly overwhelming number of witnesses that they had. I had wonderful witnesses step up for me to confirm what I had said to them during the time was exactly what I was testifying to. And certainly, of course, the fact that the other women weren't called might have made a difference. But there are still things that are nagging me personally. You know, I wonder, had 1991 been handled differently, whether Christine Blasey Ford's testimony would have resonated stronger, whether the Kavanaugh hearing 
might have been structured differently. Right. I had the same feeling of deja vu. Here we go again. You know, they're keeping out relevant evidence, doing everything they can to shut down what's actually happened. So I'm going to ask you, what is that one lesson that we should have learned from 1991? Well, I think it is the importance of really trying to find out what happened and being willing to get the unpleasant details out in the open so that people understand what's happening. Because the basic problem over and over in the hearings was a failure to put on all the relevant evidence. There was instead an attempt to keep out relevant evidence, to shut it down. And unless you can hear everything that bears on the credibility of what the key parties are saying, there's no chance of finding out the truth. Finding out the truth isn't about finger pointing or vindication. It's about giving us a starting point for trying to make things right. As we wrapped up our conversation, Ross reminded me of another memory from a long time ago. Just a few weeks after the hearing, we went to a conference of women elected in offices across the country. It was a delegation of state legislators, state women legislators from around the country. We walked in with Anita leading the way, and suddenly all the women rose, and they had pink napkins, and they waved the napkins in the air. And there was just this round of applause for Anita. Such a contrast with what we had faced on the Senate committee with all those white men, one side overtly hostile, the other side sitting quietly and doing nothing. (laughs) It got me through the winter. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I admire you so much for the courage you displayed and standing up and doing what was right and then your dedication to these issues over the years ever since. Prior to the Thomas confirmation hearing, many people didn't know that sexual harassment was illegal. Now they do in part because of the hearing in 1991. But knowing that the law exists isn't enough. To get equality, victims and their allies need to know how to use the law. One thing that struck me after speaking with Susan Deller Ross and Sakari Hardnett, one of the witnesses who wasn't called to testify at the 1991 Thomas confirmation hearing is that even though the process was imperfect, they both said that they would do it again. I feel the same way. I never set out to get mired in a Supreme Court confirmation hearing. But what I did set out to do way back before I ever met Clarence Thomas was to tell the truth and to make our country a more just place. In the rest of the series, I'll be talking to other people who, like Hardinette and Ross, have taken risks to make equality more possible, more tangible. People who I believe we should all be listening to. Next, I speak with Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the terms intersectionality and critical race theory. Race reform has in this country always been met with a backlash. And sometimes the backlash 
was more powerful and lasted longer than the reform jet. Getting Even is a production of Pushkin Industries and is written and hosted by me, Anita Hill. It is produced by Mo Laborde and Brittany Brown. Our editor is Sarah Kramer. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wang. And our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Luis Guerra composed original music for the show. Our executive producers are Mia Lobel and Letal Malad. Our director of development is Justine Lang. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Julia Barton, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Anita Hill and on Facebook at Anita Hill. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods. And you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Subscribe to Pushkin Plus and you can hear Getting Even and other Pushkin shows ad-free and receive exclusive bonus episodes. Sign up on the Getting Even show page in Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.